Today's reading is Amos chapters 7 and 8. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the late crops were coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary in the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, Do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? he asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing, many, many bodies flung everywhere, silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy, and do away with the poor of the land, saying, 
When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath ended that we may market wheat? Skimping on the measure, boosting the price and cheating with dishonest scales. Buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, selling even the sweepings with the wheat. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this, and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the Sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us today. Thank you, Jan. Good morning, everyone. Well, it's, it's lo- it is lovely to be back. We're, we're glad to be here and uh, to have little Arthur here as well. And just a big thank you for everyone who's sent encouraging messages or uh, meals or little gifts as well. It's been really, um, really appreciated and we've certainly felt very loved by the church body. So thank you very much. Uh, well, it's great also to be back in Amos. Um, and we're sort of, we're getting close to the end of Amos now. We're at week uh, six of seven through the whole book. And it's been good just to track through the entire account of Amos. Next week we'll do the last chapter, chapter 9. But let me just give a very quick recap of Amos, especially if you haven't been here for any of the other messages in the series. Um, Amos was a prophet, a prophet in the Old Testament who was active in the mid-700s BC. And he was a prophet from the south, from the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom in the divided kingdom time. But he was doing his work in the north, in the kingdom of Israel, uh, speaking God's word against that nation. This was a time, the mid-700s, of peace and prosperity for God's people. But Israel's king, the king of the nation Amos was speaking to, did not follow God's ways. In Amos, it begins with an initial section of judgment against the nations around Israel. But then we move to the main focus of the book, which is that God will bring disaster upon his people Israel for their disobedience to him. That's really the big thrust of the book of Amos. So far in Amos, we've seen... And we sort of see this through the the chapters as we go, the sins of the people outlined and the judgment that God's going to bring. And for most of chapters two through eight, 
those are the big focal points. Sometimes there's more detail about what the people have been doing. Sometimes there's more detail about what God's got planned. But those are the big things that carry us through the book of Amos, the sin of the people and God's planned judgment. And in today's reading, in chapters 7 and 8, uh, the focus is really on the second of those things, the judgment God has got planned. What will God's judgment be like? What's it going to look like? When's it going to happen? What should people expect to see when God's judgment arrives? And there's two big things we learn about God's judgment here. We learn that it's measured and that it's impending. If we go to the next slide, thanks Gordon, we see that it's measured and it's impending. So let's have a look how this plays out. Firstly, in chapter 7, we see that God's judgment is measured. As we get to the end of Amos, there's five visions that are detailed here. Three of them are here in chapter 7. There's one in chapter 8, which we'll look at as well. And the last one you have to hang on for next week. It's in chapter 9. There's five visions, and they're all visions of judgment. So we'll just look at the first two. They kind of go together. The first one says, This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested. And just as the late crops were coming up, when they, that's the locusts, had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. Second vision. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Sovereign Lord said. These first two visions are visions of total destruction from God. One is locusts devouring all the crops of the land. Picture of total destruction. The timing that's described there would have led to all the food being gone, basically, in the land, and Israel would have starved. The second vision is similar. It's a vision of fire so powerful, it actually dries up land and ocean too. When I read that description, um, in Amos chapter 7, I think of Black Saturday fires. You might remember those from back in 2009. And, and the state coined a new level, didn't it? A new level of measuring extreme fires. Catastrophic joined the, the little um, scale that we use to measure fires because we just didn't have the vocab to measure something of that extremity before. The fire described here is even worse than that. It's a fire that even burns the ground itself. And Amos, he gets it. He gets these visions from God and he knows what they mean. He knows what they refer to. These are visions of total judgment, complete judgment against God's people. And so he pleads with God after each to spare Israel. He says Israel's too small. They're too helpless to experience this kind of devastation. And incredibly, I think the real surprise is both time God... God listens and relents. He doesn't bring on the judgment planned. I want to speak a a couple of quick things about this. Firstly, God's relenting here. It's not a sign that he has forgiven his people or let them off the hook. There's more visions of judgment coming. We're going to get to that. It's just that God's decided not to totally destroy his people, not to wipe them off the face of the earth. But the second tricky thing here is about whether God is changing his mind or not. This is a really tricky topic. Does God change his mind? And it's one we've looked at before, but because it's come up again, I want to consider it today as well. Through the Bible, we see, we read, sorry, we read that God does not change his mind. 
Uh, a few times we see this. This is a good example from the book of Numbers. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and then not fulfill? But then, in passages like today, it appears that God does change his mind. He has a plan for destruction. He even articulates that plan. But then Amos petitions God to be merciful and God relents and doesn't follow through with what he's doing. What is going on? Is God changing his mind? One thing that I find really helpful when I look at this little conundrum is that almost every time we see God changing his mind, it's the same pattern. It's that God is planning judgment or destruction and then he relents due to repentance from the person that he's focusing on or or petition on their behalf from someone else. Someone comes to God and says, please, Lord, have mercy. And God changes his plans. So when Moses petitions God to spare his people in Exodus 32, God relents from destroying his people. In Jonah, when the people of Nineveh turn back to God in repentance and sorrow, God relents and doesn't destroy the city. In fact, in Jonah, uh, you get Jonah's anger at, at what God does. And God, Jonah's angry because he knows this is, this is kind of what God does. This is God's character. He's not angry because God's acting strangely. He's angry because this is just the kind of thing God is likely to do. This is what Jonah says. He says, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Jonah's frustrated because God's changed his mind and he's not destroying this, this nation, this enemy of, of Jonah and his people. But what's important to see here is that God relenting in a circumstance like this, it's actually, it's actually a hallmark of his character. God keeps doing this. He does it again and again. He, he's not fickle. He doesn't just randomly change his plans and his mind. I think that's what really the, the book of Numbers is referring to. No, God is consistent. He's consistent in being merciful and relenting. It's right at the heart of who God is, right at his character, as Jonah, even though angry, correctly identifies. God's mercy is not an aberration of his character. It actually demonstrates it. We actually worship a God who relents from bringing judgment. That's the kind of thing our God does. That's what God is like. And God changing his mind or or his plans in this way, well, this is true for us too, isn't it? This is true for us. Because of our sin and because of our rejection of God, God's verdict upon us, God's verdict upon me, is rightly guilty. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, in our place, if we trust in Jesus, God changes his mind. He changes his verdict about us. He changes his plans about us and declares us to be not guilty. And that's just, that's what our God is like. That's what God's character is like. He has changed his plans he's changed his mind about me but as i suggested here in amos this relenting doesn't mean that judgment is completely gone god's just made an adjustment here so we see this in the third vision the third vision is this is what he showed me the lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand and the lord asked me what do you see amos a plumb line i replied then the lord said look I'm setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I'll spare them no longer. 
This third vision shows God standing next to a, a straight wall uh, with a plumb line in his hand. Now, the plumb line, I'm sure some of you know this, was like an old-style spirit level before you could, you know, use the little fluid measure. A plumb line would be pulled by gravity. You get a straight line. I think you get the idea. Uh, and it'd be useful for building buildings straight. You could use a plumb line. It's usually a weight uh, on, a thin, on a thin cord. So you've got an exact vertical to measure to. The vision here of a building is a vision that represents God's people. God's people is often described as a building in the Old Testament. And the plumb line is probably a reference to God's law. It's an interesting vision. Here, God is reminding Amos that he has built his people. God has built his people and formed them according to his law. In line with it, just as God designed, nice and straight, according to plumb. But now God says, I think I need to get that old plumb line out again. And I need to measure my people again. I need to check, how's that wall going? How's that building? Is it still in line with what it should have been? Or has it got a bit wonky over the years? God's going to measure his people and see how they measure up. This plan judgment is different to the first two. Because it's discriminating. It's, it's measured. It takes into account how people have gone, individual sinfulness or faithfulness. Because at that time in Israel, in ancient Israel, there would have been people, maybe not many, but there would have been people who were seeking to be faithful to God, following God's laws, conducting worship properly, not exploiting others. When the measure, when the plumb line falls next to them, God will see their faithfulness. But for most individuals at that time in ancient Israel, when the plumb line is shown, it will show just how wonky the house has become. And as God says, I'll spare them no longer. The next verse actually gives a good example of this to kind of get a a grasp on what's going on here. We see God's focus hones in on the most wonky parts of the building, the places of false worship and the house of the king. We read this. It says, the high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. A couple of key examples that we've seen through Amos where that plumb line is going to show, yeah, this building's a bit out of joint. The sanctuaries where there's been false worship and the king himself, Jeroboam, his house, where he was disobeying God and exploiting the poor. Now, at this point in chapter 7, it's good to remember, while Amos is seeing these visions... He's also reporting them. He's also broadcasting them. He's probably up on a raised place in in one of the main cities, probably in Samaria, declaring these loudly to all who would hear. And at this point, he's just talked about the shrine, the place of worship in the north, and the house of the king. And people have listened. People have heard those. It's like name checks when, you know, something comes up. You think, oh, I know Jeroboam. That's the king. As soon as Amos speaks out against the sanctuary and the king, the leader of the largest sanctuary, the one at Bethel in the north, complains to the king. Amaziah, priest at Bethel, he tells King Jeroboam, we've got to get rid of this Amos. This guy's got to go. Clearly he's not happy that Amos is speaking against the sanctuary at Bethel and saying it will be removed. And he's also hoping, he's kind of betting the fact that the king will also not like being named by Amos. Now, 
as you read through chapter 7, you'll see, we don't really know what the king says. The, king's not, the king doesn't say anything. So we don't know what the king thinks of this. Maybe the king was too busy. Maybe he doesn't really care about Amos. But Amaziah, the priest, he, he takes it on himself. He says, all right, I'm going to have it out with Amos. And we get this exchange between the priest, Amaziah, the priest at the shrine of Bethel, and Amos, the prophet of God. Uh, and it's an interesting little sort of back and forth. Firstly, Amaziah tells Amos, get out. Get out of Israel. And there's a cheap shot here too. You might sort of see that in the language. He accuses him of prophesying for money. And he says, look, mate, if you want, if you want to make money having a go at us northerners, go back down south. Go back down south. Go back home. They'll love to hear you having a go at us. They'll pay you well for insulting Israel. And Amos says, do you think I'm doing this for the money? He says, look, before God called me, I was doing all right. I was, a, I was an orchard worker. I was a shepherd. I had a good life down in Judah. I didn't ask for this. I didn't ask for this treatment. I didn't have a care in the world. But God called me to this. I'm not from a line of prophets. I'm not, this wasn't a family occupation for me. No, God called me to this, and I had to obey. I had to come to Israel and prophesy. I'm not doing this for money. I'd be much more comfortable uh, in my old occupation. And then he's got a word for Amaziah. He says, Amaziah, you will not be spared this. He said, in fact, you and your family are going to cop the worst of it. Stopping God's word, it's not just a matter of silencing me, says Amos, or kicking me out of town. He says, no, God's plans, they're going to come to fruition, whatever happens. It's kind of a fun little encounter. I say fun. It probably wasn't very fun for either of them. But it's fun to read uh, between these two gentlemen. It can seem like an aside as well. This can seem like a diversion. We're going through visions. We've had one, two, three, and then suddenly we've, we've got this conversation between the two men. But I actually think this fits in here perfectly because Amos and Amaziah represent the plumb line, the measuring of God's judgment from the previous vision. In the vision of that plumb line, God says, I'm going to measure my people. I'm going to see how they stack up. I'm not just going to wipe out the entire population. I'm going to see how they go against the law. I know how to judge fairly. Well, in this exchange, Amaziah is measured and he's been found wanting. And so God, in his discernment, will bring judgment upon Amaziah. So that's chapter 7. That's where we see God's judgment is measured. God doesn't stick with his plan for total national annihilation. But he says, I'm going to measure the people. I'm going to judge them according to the measure. What might this mean for us today? Is this still true today? Well, yes, it is. This is absolutely true today. God will still judge people and his judgment will be measured. A couple of, maybe about 100, 150 years after Amos, God speaks through another prophet, Ezekiel. And in great detail, he outlines how God's judgment will be measured. Ezekiel chapter 18, God states, the one who sins is the one who will die. And then, look, it's kind of interesting reading if you get the chance, Ezekiel chapter 18. Every possible possibility is explored by God and the prophet. Okay, what if you had an, an evil father, right? An evil father, but then the son is a really faithful guy. Will the son be punished for the crimes of the father? God says, no, the one who sins is the one who will die. And the chapter ends like this. I've got it there on the screen. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from your offences, then your sin will not be your downfall. Isn't that great news? God will judge each 
based on their sin or their faithfulness and his judgment will be fair and just. God's judgment is measured. Are there any problems with this? Well, I think there's one problem with this. The problem with this is that all of us will naturally fall into that category of those who are sinful and will be judged. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are going to face God's just and fair and measured verdict. And for, for all of us, that verdict is guilty. And yet God provides a way out. God sends his son Jesus to die in our place. So for each one who trusts in Jesus and would otherwise be found guilty quite fairly, Jesus steps forward and says, no, that one can go free. I paid his price. I paid her price. In Revelation, there's a picture of the final judgment. And in this picture, God judges people based on their deeds. We read this. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Books were opened, and the dead were judged according to what they had done in the books. But right in the middle of that verse is a reference to another book, the book of life, a list of all who trust in Jesus and whose judgment measured, just, and fair, is covered by Jesus' death. Thanks be to God for providing a way for us to avoid the, the fair and measured judgment of God. So in chapter 7, we see God's judgment is measured. In chapter 8, we also see it's impending. It's impending. Let me read this. We, we start with the fourth vision. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me, a basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. Then the Lord said to me, the time is ripe for my people Israel. I'll spare them no longer. It's come up a few times this series, but this, this period of time, the early 700s or the mid 700s BC, was a prosperous time for God's people. Generally, these were good days. There were some tough times, but despite people's sin, there was essentially, there was peace and there was prosperity. Mostly life was good. But God says, this good life should really be seen as like, oop, as like a ripe fruit. If you can go back to that slide, Gordon, I'm not sure we're, we're spinning there. Uh, as like a ripe fruit. That is the image of God's people that really we should be seeing here. There's abundance. There's prosperity. It's big and shiny. And God says, it's time to pick that fruit. It's time to pluck that fruit, fruit and devour it. It's hard to know exactly when Amos was delivering this section of his prophecy. We're getting pretty close to the end here. There's only one chapter to go. So it could have been right near his, the end of his ministry. Maybe it's only 20, 25 years until the exile. It's getting close in the scheme of things. It's not too far off. God says, I've held off. You know, I've, I've given warnings. I've delayed my judgment a bit. But it's coming. The time is coming. It's coming soon. The time is ripe for judgment. And then as we read through the rest of chapter 8, we get this refrain. Three to, or four times we read, in that day, or the day is coming, God starts to give more and more detailed pictures now of what this day will look like. As we were getting ready for uh, our baby to be born, uh, Heidi was asking a lot of questions about the birth of, um, well, now Arthur. We didn't know his name then. But she was particularly asking, 
what's going to happen? What's going to happen when the baby comes? What am I going to do? What if I'm at school? What if I'm asleep? And we said, look, someone's going to look after you. We didn't give a lot of details. So this is like a month out. Um, we sort of, we, we assured her she wouldn't be abandoned or, or anything. You know, we, we had people lined up to look after them. But as, the, as it got closer, as we got closer to the, the birth, we did give more detail. You know, we, we explained who we'd lined up. We sort of explained who would pick her up from school if that happened or um, who would look after her at home. As the date approached, the detail increased. We gave more and more information. This is who we've lined up. You know, daddy's going to come home at night. Mummy will stay in the hospital. I think this is kind of what's happening here. God's judgment is getting close. It's getting really close. And so God's giving more detail. So we read, in that day, the temple will no longer be a place of celebration, but of mourning. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. We read, in that day, the judgment will involve mourning taking place in all all aspects of life. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, in that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I'll make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. We read the days are coming when people will realize they're in trouble. They're actually going to realize it and turn to God and, and seek to hear from God. Even though they've ignored his prophets during the good times, even though they've brushed off God's word right up until now, finally, as the armies are gathering, they're going to cry out to God. They're going to seek God. They're going to seek his word. And there won't be an answer because God will be silent. We read, the days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. And finally we read, in that day, even the young men and women, the, the ones who surely would step up and lead, the strong ones, the ones who would survive, we read, in that day, they will fail. And those false gods they've trusted in will be of no help. In that day, the lovely young women and strong young men will faint because of thirst, those who swear by the sin of Samaria and say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives, they will fall, never to rise again. There's lots of detail here, isn't there, about what God's judgment is going to look like. But the main thrust is, it's coming soon. It is coming soon. God's judgment is impending. All right, what about for us? Uh, we've already seen, like in Amos's time, for us, God's judgment is measured it was measured then. It's measured for us as well. And thankfully, despite us falling short against God's very fair measurement, God provides a way out for us to avoid his judgment. But what about this idea of God's judgment being impending? How does this relate to us? Well, certainly at different points, there can be a lot of chatter, I think, about when God's judgment is coming. When God's judgment is coming. Depending on what sort of things people look for, um, you might look for all sorts of flags as, as possible signs of judgment. War in Israel, war in Ukraine, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, even changes in economic patterns in the world. But really our understanding of when God's judgment will happen really needs to be grounded in the Bible. He, here's what we can say. God will come and bring about his final judgment in his good timing. Jesus consistently reminds his followers 
you won't be able to calculate when Jesus will return. Jesus says, even I don't know when it's going to happen. For whatever reason, this is something that only God the Father knows. So in Matthew 24, Jesus says, About that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Could Jesus return tomorrow? Absolutely he could. Could Jesus return in another hundred or thousand years? Absolutely. We're just not going to know. And, and that's actually okay. We actually don't need to know. And the reason is, it shouldn't change how we live. It shouldn't change how we live. Whether Jesus returns tomorrow or whether Jesus returns long after we've died. In Matthew, Jesus tells a bunch of parables about Jesus' return. And many of them end with the same point. This is one. Matthew 24, verse 44. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. The, the big message is, not to try and guess or calculate, the big message is be ready. Be ready. And if you trust in the sacrifice of Jesus, you are ready. That's what we need to do. Keep trusting in Jesus and regardless of when he returns, you will be safe with him. The other natural question when we think about timing of God's judgment, I think, is why the delay? Why, why has it taken so long? Why are we still waiting? Well, we get the answer or an answer to this in, in 2 Peter, one of the last books of the New Testament. People at this time were, were starting to ask this question. Many of the initial disciples had died and they were thinking, why has Jesus not returned yet? Peter writes, Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the reason there. God, God's delayed the return of Jesus to give people more time to turn to him in repentance and be saved. God is holding off. He's delaying his judgment for the sake of people, to allow people to turn to him and avoid judgment. And I think this is wonderful news, when you, especially when you think of family or friends who don't yet trust in Jesus. It's not too late. Not for them. Not yet. Hopefully as well from this, this kind of reminder gives us just that right amount of urgency in sharing our faith with Jesus, knowing that God is merciful and delays his return for this very reason, and also knowing that Jesus can return at any time. This delay as well can lead some to think it's never going to happen then. It's not even a thing. It's, it's, it's a myth. There's no return of Jesus. Or even more seriously, no judgment awaits me. I can do anything on this earth with impunity. Many people who don't believe in God believe there is no final judgment. And particularly for some with great power, this can lead to horrific deeds. If they've got that settled belief that they'll never be caught while they're on earth, they'll never be brought to trial and justice, which will be true for some people in power, they think there's nothing to worry about. There's no reason to watch my behaviour. So they can do whatever they want. I think this is probably the darkest consequence of not believing in a final judgment. Listen to the very next verse in 2 Peter. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. God's judgment has been delayed? Absolutely. For the sake of humanity. What a wonderful gift from God. But it will come. It will come and then it will be too late. 
Today in Amos, we've seen God's judgment is measured and impending. For us, we know God's judgment is also measured. But we don't know when it's going to happen. So what do we do? Well, we continue to trust in Jesus and to share our faith when we can in the hope that others will also come to repentance and avoid God's judgment. Let me pray. Lord God, it can be hard to hear about your judgment, even to people so long ago in Amos's time. But Lord, we do want to thank you that you are just, that you are a fair judge. You don't let criminals go off without punishment. Lord, your judgment is fair and it's just. Lord, we thank you that your judgment is also measured, that your judgment against your people long ago was measured. And Lord, we thank you that your judgment against us is measured as well. And Lord, we do come before you so humbly today, acknowledging and confessing that as a measured judgment, we know we stand guilty. Lord, as we confess before in prayer, in the pastoral prayer, Lord, there are many times when we fail to love you with our whole heart and we fail to love our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, we are sorry. And Lord, we are so grateful. We are so grateful for the sacrifice of Jesus for our sake, providing us with a way out. Lord, thank you that you continue to show your mercy to us through Jesus. And Lord, I thank you that you delay your judgment as well. You delay your judgment so more can turn to you. Lord, I pray that you would help us to seize that opportunity to share our faith, to tell others about you while we can. And Lord, as we wait, as we wait before your return, help us to keep trusting in you, to be ready in that way, to keep walking with you day by day and knowing your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to finish our service singing.